Hello, people of the internet. Welcome back to this series of audio recording files we like to call the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. I don't know if you've heard of the intellectual dark web. This is not that. This might be the intellectual light web, though. Could be L-I-T-E, could be L-I-G-H-T, I don't know. Either way, I'd like to think it's a place where we kind of interact with philosophy and religion and spirituality and psychology, definitely sacrifice and scapegoating in an attempt to figure out who we are as human beings and who we are as communities of people. And so I know very little about all those things I just mentioned, but I'm reading, I'm listening, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to others, and I'm figuring it out as we go. And I think by the time I die, I might understand like about half of me. That's how I feel. I'm looking forward to today's episode. Uh, We're going to talk with a friend of mine. His name is Brian Zond. Brian is the pastor of Word of Life Church up in St. Joe, Missouri. He's an author. He's on tons of different podcasts. Um, His theology has been instrumental in my life over the last five and a half years. I heard Brian say not too long ago that he was doing some writing on Friedrich Nietzsche. And I've been reading Nietzsche over the last couple of years trying to get a take on what I think about him. He's a very important figure in history with respect to, well, pretty much everything, uh, certainly ideology and religion, Christianity, atheism. And he has a lot of really good things to say and some things that are completely whacked. But I was looking forward to talking with someone like Brian about Nietzsche. And so we get into that and Sacrifice and Rene Girard, of course, and a few other things. I hope you like it. I hope this is helpful for you. And to set up our conversation with Brian Zahn, how about we start out with a little quote from Friedrich Nietzsche. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? What was holest and most powerful of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Frederick Nietzsche. Writing a new book. I'm working on a new book. I haven't worked on it any in the last two weeks, but um, the the title is "What Can We Do When Everything's on Fire," which I began it months ago. You know, so in one sense, I don't have a subtitle for it, and publishers will, they'll give the subtitle anyway. Usually, I hate them, but um, but it's it's a it's really about maintaining faith in a secular age. And I, and I very early on work in Nietzsche's madman of the parable of the madman who comes and announces that, you know, I, I seek God, whither is God? I cannot find God anywhere. And the villagers laugh at him. And then he says, you know, uh, I'll tell you where God is. God is dead and we have killed him. And then at the end he says, well, I, I see I've come too soon. And he smashes the lamp. And then I'm working from there with the idea that it's around this time that, that, that faith began to be under threat and, and everything's on fire right now. Kindled that Nietzsche's madman's shattered lamp is kind of like 
Mrs. O'Leary's cow in Chicago that started a, a fire. So, and, but I'm not just using, but I also am challenging some of Nietzsche's ideas. I'm quite well read on Nietzsche. I've read a lot of Nietzsche. And I think, I think I get him. I think I understand him. I agree with him 75% of the time. Now, the 25% yeah, I, gonna, I disagree with him is like really important. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you what you affirm and what do you not affirm Nietzsche? Well, I affirm his critique of 19th century European Christianity, as did Kierkegaard. I mean, one of the great tragedies of philosophy is that Nietzsche never read Kierkegaard. Apparently, he had heard about him and had mentioned, well, so, so a, a friend had told Nietzsche, you should read, and Kierkegaard is almost entirely unknown at this point, you should read this Danish guy, Soren Kierkegaard. And Nietzsche indicated that he was interested, but that was almost right before his descent into madness. So um, his critique, you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche saw, I mean, he saw that Christian faith was coming to an end. That's what he means by God is that Nietzsche is an atheist, but in announcing that God is dead in such a daring way in the gay science, he doesn't mean he doesn't mean God is dead. He means that um, that Christianity is no longer the organizing principle for Western society, but Western society hadn't realized it yet. They still keeping up appearances going about their day-to-day -day life, but that um, in fact, uh, a secular age had already begun. Most people weren't aware of it. Nietzsche was a kind of prophet. He was aware of it. But unlike the um, glib new atheists, you know, Hitchens and Dawkins and Harris and Dennett and those, that ilk, who are all giddy about it and kind of, I don't know, I don't really take them that seriously. I mean, I read their books and I go, come on, I, I, I could be a better champion for atheism than most of those guys. I mean, I know better arguments than they know, but um, Nietzsche, on the other hand, was not that way. He wasn't uh, cavalier. It, it, it worried him. Now, he did think it was, time, it was the twilight of the idols. It was time for man to move beyond the superstition of God. That's what he believed. But he said it like that. He said, he said I don't know, man. We've, we've wiped away, the, we've sponged away the horizon. And so now you're in danger of terrible moral vertigo. Now, a lot of people will accuse Nietzsche of being a nihilist. He's not a nihilist, or at least he doesn't want to be. I think in some ways I could argue that his philosophy ultimately fails, and, it, and he's, I mean, what he's trying to do is stave off nihilism, because he knows that without God, that's the great threat, that suddenly people's like, there's no meaning. There's no meaning at all. There's no meta-narrative. There's no story to make of our existence it's all just an absurd tragedy. Uh, so his idea is to sort of go back to the pre-Socratic Greek ideas of, of uh, heroic men. And yes, he means men. <laughs> heroic men. And this is his ubermensch, his overman, his superman. This is his idea of how we're going to go forward in the development of the human species, but he has a fear. 
he fears that instead of the ubermensch, we'll get what he calls the last man. And the last man, he described, he's, he's incurious, he's utilitarian. Uh, Nietzsche, who was a mountaineer, would never, Nietzsche would completely understand Edmund Hillary's quip, or no, it's, it's, it's always attributed to Edmund Hillary. It was actually said by the other mountaineer, the one that didn't reach Everest first, but I forgot his name, Mallory. Mallory. Mallory was the one when asked, why, why are you trying to climb Everest? Because it's there. Uh, Nietzsche would totally get that. He would understand that. But he feared that humanity would develop into the last man who would only climb a mountain if he has a corporate sponsor, would only explore the ocean if he could find some oil in it, uh, would only, you know, compose a song if it could sell and make money. And he, he describes the last man. He says, the last man sits stupidly and says, we've invented happiness and blinks, you know. <laughs> and really what he's describing in about, I don't know, this is about 1880-something, he's describing the modern couch potato, the man that sits in front of his TV remote in hand with 700 channels, just, just that. And um, so I kind of have this, I kind of have this, uh, I don't know, this fantasy that I could have lunch with Nietzsche. Because I do admire the guy. I, I don't I don't see him. I see him as a I see him as an important critic of Christianity that needs to be engaged with. I don't see him as like insurmountable. I think he made some basic, basic mistakes, but but I like him. I like his honesty, his daringness. I like Nietzsche's honesty and daringness too, his willingness to call out the dominant power. At times when you read Nietzsche, you think it's not so much that he hates Christianity, it's that he hates the dominant power that Christianity has become. And along those lines, he has really insightful things to say. Of course, then there are other times when Nietzsche just seems to hate Christianity, period. Specifically, he hates the whole upside-down nature of Jesus and his message of the weak being strong. Now, I don't necessarily agree with Nietzsche, but this is honesty which I can respect. And it's different than the modern uh, New Day atheists who like to claim intellectual capability, but they seem to have no idea, or at least little idea, how to engage critically with anything other than a Christian fundamentalism. And therefore, they wind up having nothing to add except their own non-Christian fundamentalism. Nietzsche wasn't like that necessarily. He saw Christianity for what it was. He recognized the strength and the power of what it was and that it elevated the weak. And he hated it specifically for that. He's the one who said, we've killed God, but we have no idea what we've done. And now we have to make up sacred games and festivals of atonement. I see this as exactly what Christianity has done. We took what I think meant to be a sacrifice to show God doesn't need sacrifice and we made it into the sacrifice that is perfect that shows everyone that what God really needed was a perfect sacrifice. Like, finally, we have someone who's worthy enough to die for our crimes. So Nietzsche was right. We did invent a sacred game. And the game revolves around sacrifice. The problem is it doesn't work. Or actually, Brian says it better. It works. It's just not true. Well, it's... it's yes, it does work. It's just not true. Right. There you go. <laughs> it works, but it's yeah. not true. It's not a, 
it's not a true reflection of who God the Father revealed in Jesus Christ is, and it's not a true explanation of what is happening at the cross, but it does work. It, because sacrifice does work. It just doesn't mean that it's from the heart of the Father. Yeah, say more, say more about why you think sacrifice works. Well, um, early on, of course, let me just say, I'm going Girardian here. So I don't want to just keep saying Rene Girard says, Rene Girard said, Rene Girard says. Yeah, no. so, I'll, so I'll just start, and, but this is where this is coming from. Who, by the way, I got to meet. I spent a whole day in Rene Girard's house in Stanford. And uh, maybe, I don't know, this is probably close to 10 years ago. And I'll never forget that day. Um, human beings have virtually no instincts. Um, think about the gazelle born on the African savanna. I mean, within five minutes of its birth, it's up and running. <laughs> You know, it has to, or, or it's, or it's going to be devoured by the lions. Human beings can't walk for a year. <laughs> and, you know, we have a sucking reflex, and that's about it. <laughs> we, we have to learn everything. We do, though, have one thing that seems to almost be instinctual, and it's the key to who we are as human beings, or one of the keys, anyway. And that is our capacity for mimesis, that is to imitate. We imitate one another. Uh, and of course, this is part of, this is general within the, the great apes. We speak of someone aping someone, uh, but with humans, it's exponentially greater. And so great that we often don't realize we do it. But it's how we learn to value. You know, people love to say, I like to think that I'm just so authentic and I'm my own person and I am the curator of my own tastes. But most of that's an illusion. Uh, typically, what we learn to value is what other people value. This is why advertising works. This is why you have, instead of just having scientists or whoever, some expert talk about the value of this product, or instead what you do is you have some admired person saying, you know, I use this deodorant, or I drive this car, or I drink this beer. Uh, because we value what other people value. That's fine. That, that, that in, in fact, it's all in all, it's a good thing. It's, it's first of all, it's uh, unavoidable. It's not going to be any other way. It's the way it works. Um, and it's how you can instill the values of your tribe, your society, your culture into children and you know, have a cohesive tradition. The problem is, is uh, you see it in love triangles. The problem is when two men are in love with the same woman. <laughs> And then, then problems arise. And then you have, the, you have the problem of all against all violence. And early in human development, uh, humans are social. We're by far the most social. You know, we talk about social species. I mean, humans are far and away. We, we cannot survive alone. I mean, we, and right now in this great pandemic, we're kind of being reminded of that. Man, I, I'm so dependent on people I never, ever think about but we're so interconnected. And, but even early on in our development, we were that way. We're a very uh, social species, but the tribe is always in danger of all against all violence sparked by mimetic desire. 
Um, how, how do you deal with it? What do you do with it? What do you do about it? Well, human cultures around the world, this is universal, stumbled on, probably by, by accident, a way to deal with this. And that is that if the tribe or the group or whatever, I'll say tribe because I, that makes me think more primitive, but uh, some people might think that's a pejorative, but I'm just trying to you know, speak accurately here. Um, if the group of people will, say, collect all of their anxiety, their rage, their fear, their insecurity, and say, and blame one person, say, there, it's that witch there. It's that person there. That person there is possessed of the devil. And we all come into agreement that that's the problem. That's why, why, we, why we feel this way, because of that person there. And then you go out and you stone them. Oh, stoning's, stoning's a good example, too. Stoning is the mean of communal execution we find even in the scriptures, right? I mean, it's actually prescribed in the Levitical Code that certain sinners are to be stoned. Now, why stoning? Because stoning is not the most efficient way to dispatch a human life. I mean, lop off their head, it's a lot quicker and easier. Uh, stoning, though, does have one particular advantage, and that is it allows the entire community to participate and each individual to exonerate themselves. I, I didn't kill him. I just threw a stone. That's that's where, that's what stoning, maybe if I remember, I'll talk about Jesus when he was at a stoning one time. But um, so what you do is, is you agree to blame this one victim. And what happens is it's cathartic. You, you in fact, you cast out the devil, you cast out that anxiety, that rage, that fear, that insecurity, and there is, a, at least momentarily, there is a sense of whew, peace that comes over the community. Here's an example. Um, imagine a group of, let me pick an age, a group of uh, 10-year-old boys on a playground. And they're all kind of they're getting rough because they're, they're kind of wondering who's the toughest, who's the strongest. And there's a lot of anxiety on the playground because nobody's quite sure. And they're kind of afraid that they're going to be picked on. And so there's a lot of anxiety. But suddenly the group, without knowing how they do it, this is the Satan at work, they pick out one kid. Maybe he's a new kid. Maybe he doesn't have any big brothers. Maybe he looks funny. Maybe he's fat. Maybe he's got glasses. Who knows? They pick this one kid, and they all agree to pick on him. And what happens is it brings peace to the playground. The boys are all kind of happy and they're jovial and they get along. A miracle has occurred. There's peace on the playground, but it's come at the expense of hell for one person, one victim. Uh, this, has, this happened all around the world and they, they stumbled onto this and they realized, oh, this brings peace to our community. And then they eventually found ways to do it deliberately with annual or more than annual with, with human sacrifices. And it's the birth of archaic religion. Uh, eventually it moves and mitigates over to animal sacrifice. Um, but this is, um, this is the scapegoat mechanism that, that, we, that when we're under great stress, we achieve unity by blaming. I know this as a speaker. Look, I mean, I know how to do it. I, I wouldn't do it because I would lose my soul. But I'm just saying I know how to do it. Uh, if you put me in the right setting, you know, the setting's right, 
put me in the right setting with the right group of American uh, conservative Christians. But it works. Liberals scapegoat too. Believe me, believe me, believe me. They do. Uh, but I'm just using this example. And I, and if I were to preach a sermon, this is back when we could get together. <laughs> and I preach a sermon, I say, uh, you know what's wrong with America? It's, and then whatever, you know, it's those liberals. It's those, it's those gays. It's those, those socialists. It's the Chinese. It's the, and, and I, you know, proof text that I'll have some verses and, and if I do it good enough, um, and I would know how to do it good enough, uh, when I sue there, there would be a, it would be so cathartic, and there would be a, a coming together of unity of the crowd. Remember, Soren Kierkegaard said the crowd is untruth, uh, but you, people don't know that. And so, I mean, look, I can, I mean, I have done it. Now, you know, I repented a long time ago, but, you know, right after 9-11, this is almost 20 years ago, 18 and a half years ago, I, uh, you know, I preached sermons where I scapegoated Muslims. I never had, I never had one person complain about those sermons. Not one. They would come up and they'd say, Pastor, that was so anointed. That was was powerful preaching. It was anointed. And they're right. It was anointed. It was anointed by the unholy spirit. But knowing the difference between the holy and unholy spirit is very difficult. And one of the things the cross does the cross is many things. The cross is not just one thing. It's many, many things. But one of the things the cross is, is the, um, it's the expose of the scapegoat mechanism. Because uh, we, we see Jerusalem coming together in unity to execute this one victim. But the gospel makes very clear that the victim is innocent. That, that the victim had simply become a scapegoat. And so we see that scapegoating is so diabolical, so demonic, and I'm using that word, word very deliberately, so satanic, I'm using that very deliberately, that um, it's capable of the greatest crime possible, deicide, the murder of God. And so among the many things that the cross is, it's the expose of the scapegoat mechanism and it calls us to not play the blame game, which essentially is what the devil is. Um, while, before we just leave this, because I, I referred to stoning, uh, when they bring the woman caught in adultery before Jesus, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting how Jesus diffused that situation. They come and they bring this woman. They said this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses in the, in the Bible says, stone such women. Uh, what do you say? It's a trap. I mean, they're willing to stone the woman. I'm sure of that. But I don't think that's primarily what's driving, although that's there. But either way, they've got him. You know, e- either, he, either he comes across as, oh, you don't believe the Bible. No, we're not going to do that. Or he's... <laughs> you know, kind of repudiating everything that he stood for and taught by participating in a Levitical stoning of an adulterous woman. At first, Jesus doesn't even engage with them. He, he, he mysteriously writes in the dust. We don't know what he writes. There's all kinds of theories. There are all kinds of ideas about what was going on there. We just don't know. Uh, they press him further, and what Jesus says is brilliant. Because people will do as a mob— See, the scapegoat phenomenon turns individuals into a crowd. The crowd is untruth, and the mob is demonic. 
a lynch mob. People, everybody knows, every sociologist, psychologist knows that people will do things as a mob that they would never do as an individual. That there is a spell, a satanic spell that comes over them and they become much more cruel. You see this on the internet. You see, internet mobs are, are far more insulting and cruel and vicious than, than a single person usually ever would be. And because uh, there's, oh, there's reasons for that. Jesus says, all right, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't directly challenge them. He doesn't say you can't do this. He says, all right, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. It says, brilliant. Let the one, so he's, he said, okay, if you're going to do this, you can do it, but don't act as a crowd, don't act as a mob, act as an individual. Be responsible for your own actions. Let the one who is without sin, and there's a movement where he calls them now to become self-reflective, because they have to ask themselves, okay, uh, am I without sin? Hmm. And in, the, in those two moves, in act as an individual and act as a self-reflective individual, the spell is broken, and one by one, they go away. You see, they're, they're, they're no longer a crowd, a mob. They, beginning with the elders first, the older ones, because all things being equal, uh, older people can be closer to becoming contemplative just because they've lived longer, which is to say they have suffered longer. It doesn't always happen, but it can happen. All right, so that's a riff on... Gerard scapegoating, stoning, Love it. cross, stuff like that. And, and why sacrifice works. Yeah, that's, that's why sacrifice works. It feels like, well, it's probably true. America has been invented on a sacred game of sacrifice and murder and violence. Rene Gerard says, most, most serious scholars and philosophers and of that ilk are prone to defend Nietzsche from some of his less articulate detractors. Gerard, on the other hand, says that what Nietzsche is really suggesting is a return to human sacrifice. He doesn't quite have the nerve to come right out and say it, but that is what he's meaning. And once Gerard showed me that, you, you see that come up in Nietzsche's writing. You think, yikes! I think that's what he is talking about. Well, I, it's not a yeah. It's definitely I could connect the dots because he's not a fan of weakness. He's not a fan of the of Christian charity or hospitality, right? Which is compassion and yeah. I'm gonna I'm looking up something here. It's in this book. If I can find it here, I don't think it'll take me too long. Here we go. This is what Jacques Derrida said. Derrida also figures into my book, for good and ill. <laughs> sometimes I treat him well, sometimes I don't. But um, Derrida says this, the future of the Nietzschean text is not closed. Of course you'd say that with Derrida, no text is ever closed, but let's leave that aside. The future of the Nietzschean text is not closed. But if within the still open contours of an era, the only politics calling itself proclaiming itself Nietzschean, will have been a Nazi one, then this is necessarily significant and must be questioned in all of its consequences. Um, Gerard just comes out and says, uh, the, the, the Nazis read Nietzsche correctly and acted on it. 
One of the most interesting things to me was the way Nietzsche's life ended. Um, he went mad. So the story goes that his last sane act involved him running across the street and in an act of compassion, throwing his arms around a horse who was being beaten by its master. Now think about that. Nietzsche had spent his entire adult life talking about how the weak really weren't strong. It was the strong who were strong. But in something of, I, I guess, like an explosion of cognitive dissonance towards the end of his life, he sees this horse and he goes insane because he can't contain the truth any longer, the truth of compassion and grace and of mercy. And I happen to think it's the thing that caused him to go mad. One can't but help to think of Hans Urs von Balthasar's quote, love alone is credible. It is as if at some deep level, Nietzsche realized now love is the only thing that's actually true. And can I offer some commentary on evangelical Christianity in the U.S.? Well, what are you going to do? Say no. It seems to me that we have a ton of seminaries and professors and preachers and teachers and schools and universities that build their entire theology upon a God that needs sacrifice, that needed to kill his son, that forgiveness only comes via shed blood, via sacrifice. And so these same people apply this sacrifice. I mean, because if your God needs sacrifice, of course it's okay at some level for you to sacrifice. And so we have all these people who apply scapegoating and sacrifice to the other, like the other person of the wrong theology, the other person of the wrong politics, the wrong person uh, in terms of sexuality, the wrong person, well, it doesn't matter, just fill in the blank as long as it's the other person and they don't believe like us. In other words, and I'll throw myself in the lot here too, we believe in a violent God. We act with violence towards others. And yet down deep, we know that love is the only credible thing. And if you're a pastor listening to this episode, I just want to say, be careful, man or woman. Your cognitive dissonance, it cannot be contained. It is going to come out at some level. Now, I don't know if it's going to result in you hugging a horse and then going mad in an explosion of insanity because you can't connect all of the dots in terms of the way that you have lived and the way you've thought about others and what you really know about love. I don't know if it's going to you know, be as dramatic as Friedrich Nietzsche, but something's going to get hurt unless you extricate yourself from a system that keeps sacrifice at the heart of the game. It is a system that works in people's mind, but at the cost of maligning God the Father. And um, I'll give you an example. Within this system, you, you and this is, and by the way, it's Calvinism, Calvinism is what it is. I did a public debate in Kansas City a few years ago with Dr. Michael Brown and put on by IHOP of all people. And uh, I was backstage before the debate with Michael Brown. And I said, you know, this is the second time in the month I've done a public debate with Calvinists. Now, I said that de de deliberately provocative because he's not a Calvinist, at least he claims. I mean, he debates Calvinists. I said, I said, well, you may, you may say you're not a Calvinist, but your atonement theology is pure Calvinism. That's where it comes from. But within Calvinism, you'll have this quip, and I think nearly all evangelicals have heard this, and they've grown up with this. 
that Jesus Christ endured on the cross what we all deserve. And, you know, if you get up on any, you know, Baptist, Assembly of God, Evangelical, whatever, church on a Sunday morning and say that, you'll get amens. I mean, nobody will like you. And I just want to say, stop it. That's not true. I mean, let's just let's just think of it this way. You're, someone says in that church, and I want to just stand up and say, okay, here's see this little eight-year-old girl here? Are you saying that she deserves to be beaten, whipped, and nailed to a tree until she's dead? She deserves that. No one deserves that. No one deserves that. And but in that system, that's why what you have to do. But it's just, it's just not it's just not true. It's an ugly insertion into the beautiful gospel. So if you're going to hold on to PSA, then you have to say things like you have to have this ugly insertion into the prodigal son. And the father saw the son in the distance and he felt compassion for him and ran to the servants' quarters where he beat the hell out of a whipping boy and satisfied his wrath and then came and embraced his son. No, that's no. We don't need that. Truer words have never been said. We do not need that. I love this episode. I love talking with Brian about this stuff. And I hope you consider some of the things that he has said and that we've talked about. And not just what we've said, but the implications in all of it. It's staggering. To organize our lives around love rather than sacrifice to stand up to the religious institutions who are inventing one sacred game after another, one festival of atonement after another. To do that is the hope of the world. Our world is in such a crazy time. It seems like it always is, but never has it ever been in need more of Christians who say, no, that's not how I'm going to live. I'm going to live my life based on the one who loves me, who motivates me to love others, and who lives in all that love, rather than living my life based on the one who accuses me, who motivates me to accuse others, and lives in all the accusation. No, God is love, and may we all live that way. Challenging stuff, man. I know it's challenging me and critiquing me, so I'm, I'm trying to organize my life around it. It is not the easiest thing. Thanks for being with us today. I look forward to catching up with you next time. If you dug anything that happened in this episode, I mean anything remotely, feel free to like it, share it, follow it, star it, bop it, zap it, smoke it. What was that game we used to play with the kids? Bop it. That was a good game. I was terrible at it. but So do that with this episode if you want. Um, and I'll catch you next time. Have a great day. Peace.